The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay. Um, good afternoon. You're all very welcome to this week's seminar at the Trinity Centre for Early Modern History. I'm Patrick, Patrick Walsh and I'll be chairing this session. Um, and it's just good to see so many people here. And um, for I think what's going to be an absolutely fascinating talk um, led by Dr. Susan Flavin, who is Associate Professor of Early Modern History here at Trinity um, and Director of the Food Cult Project which, is, which you're going to be hearing a lot more about, which is funded by the European Research Council. And Susan, as many of you know, um, is an expert on consumption and the history of food and drink in 16th and 17th century Ireland, most best known, I think, for her book on consumption and culture in 16th century Ireland, which came out with Boydell in 2014, and a whole host of articles and chapters since. And today's presentation, um, features, I think, features Susan, but also features two of her colleagues, Dr. Muriel um, from Muriel McClatchy and Dr. Ellen O'Carroll, who are both in the School of Archaeology at UCD. And I think this is a critical element of Susan's project. It's both interdisciplinary and intra-institutional. So it has colleagues working across a number of institutions, not just Trinity and UCD, but that's what we have today, and across a number of disciplines, um, crossing, I suppose, the interface between the humanities and on the fringes of the harder sciences. Um, and we'll hear, we'll hear a little bit more about that. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hand over to Susan. Just before I do that, I just want to stress that if you've, when you're viewing this from home, um, you can move the image of the speaker um, around your screen so you can see the slides better. So just be aware of that um, as well. Likewise, if you have any questions for our panelists, please post them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. You can post questions as we go through the session and then we'll deal with all the questions at the end of the session. Um, so feel free to post questions as they come to you rather than waiting until the end of the until the end of the session. Um, otherwise, I'm going to hand over to Susan um, who'll take it who'll take it from here. Great, thanks very much, Patrick. Um, and it's lovely to be um, here, well not here, virtually here to talk about the, the project. Um, as Patrick mentioned, it's an ERC funded project and it's a five-year project that started in 2019. Um, so it's, it's a major interdisciplinary effort. Um, and today, I suppose, is a good opportunity to talk about our aims and methods in broad terms, our progress, um, and why the project is significant for Irish food studies, but also for the field of food history more, more broadly. Now, as you probably know, historians have been quite slow to engage with food as a serious academic subject. But in the past 20 years or so, the food really has, the field really has witnessed um, quite dramatic expansion. And it's become a very dynamic field, or as Christopher Cassan recently put it, um, no longer an insular historical subgenre on its own, but a subject that sits at the heart of historical study and spreads right through its breadth. And much of this new historiography, 
and my slides aren't working. <laughs> Here we go, sorry about that. Much of this um, new historiography focuses on Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. And this isn't surprising. The early modern period, of course, was one of profound change in diet and food world views. So growing trade and the increase in intercultural contact introduced new foods and consumables and encouraged the exploration of new markets, the expansion of political power, the growth of empires, these things bred aggressive colonial food politics and an increasing ideological obsession and with national foodways from the 16th century. New ideas, especially Renaissance humanism, led to debates about what should be eaten, um, who should eat it, how to be eaten, and so on. And at the same time, of course, changing religious ideas led to a shift in the spiritual meaning of food and to radically different patterns and components of diet. So the movement away from fasting and feasting um, less emphasis on fish and so on in, in different um, social contexts. Food was a, was a key agent in transformations um, of this period, and in turn, these transformations made diet central to processes of early modern self-fashioning and identity formation. So it's therefore a really good lens, as historians are now discovering, through which to explore multiple themes in early modern history. And this is why of late there's been such a huge proliferation of work in England and Europe. And this is just a very small sample of, of, um, of this work. Still though, there are issues regarding um, how we approach as historians such a vast subject. Um, at present, efforts are still really divided between sort of more quantitative based studies that explore dietary trends and nutrition on the one hand, and on the other hand, more cultural, literary and symbolic um, focused projects. And lately, cultural studies like this have started to sort of lead or dominate this field. And this work does really add enormously to our understanding of, of foodways and food cultures. But there does remain a need to ground early modern food ideologies in a framework of actual dietary practices. So I suppose, put simply, um, how can we understand the expression of religious identity through food if we don't also evaluate actual changes in the rituals of fasting or in the relative consumption of meat and fish? Um, how can we understand the context of Renaissance self-fashioning or globalization if we don't also explore changing patterns of elite food consumption? How can we understand the significance um, of the ideological role of food in national identities if we don't explore the comparative diets of different intercultural groups? Um, or for that matter, the significance of satirical representations of peasants uh, stuffing their faces with cheese or beans if we don't also examine the lived experience of the lower orders. Um, or again, um, the social and political significance of drunkenness, for example, if we don't understand the nature of early modern beer. Now, undertaking this kind of analysis has always been highly challenging for historians. The lack of detailed documentary evidence for diet beyond um, the level of elite consumption means that this can only be achieved really through a very deep interdisciplinary cooperation across science, technology, and the humanities. And so what we're going to do today really is, is give you a sort of a blueprint um, for the interdisciplinary approach that we're going to take to this, focusing on Ireland as a case study for analysis. Now, Ireland, uh, for obvious reasons, is a very interesting case study, um, but if the pace and change 
of food studies elsewhere has been slow in Ireland, um, while it is definitely picking up of late, um, in Ireland it's been glacial, especially for this particular um, period. And this, of course, is despite the fact that food was probably of deeper and more complex significance in Ireland than anywhere else in, in Europe. During this period that we're focused on, um, successive waves of immigration transformed the demography of the country, and that led to unprecedented intercultural contact, radically different settlement patterns, and of course the complex processes of acculturation that to this day define Irish society. The period was profoundly important in terms of Irish social and cultural development, and yet despite all the ink spilled on politics and conquest and colonization, we still know very little really about the fundamentals of, of everyday life with regards to, to natives and settlers, and that particularly relates to the issue of, of food. And of course, food mattered in this context. It justified colonization. It distinguished, or we think it distinguished, um, different ethnic communities. And of course, English national food ideologies were formed largely in opposition to the uncivilized manners and, and dietary habits of the Irish. So the first key objective is, I suppose, to use Ireland as a, as a case study to see if we can explore in more detail what food means in complex and contested early modern societies. The second objective is to challenge Irish self-perceptions in relation to food. So Irish food history, um, I suppose, in contrast to European food history, is still quite narrowly understood. It's quite a passive history um, dominated by hunger. Um, and potatoes, where all change really is, is mediated through England. And this means that we're still not engaging uh, deeply in the kinds of questions being asked elsewhere. So by exploring um, dietary experiences in a fresh context, we hope to open a dynamic new chapter in early modern Irish history. So yes, we're, we're very interested in what food can tell us about colonization, but we want to move this narrative well beyond that to explore issues of gender, issues of class, and globalization, religious identity, and so on, uh, through the lens of food. So um, the aim then really is to consider key early modern social and cultural transformations and how these impacted first on what people ate, um, but also on how they identified and interacted through, through food. Now, as I noted already, um, food is a very challenging subject. Trying to reconstruct what people actually ate is an enormous um, challenge. In Ireland, of course, from a historical point of view, this is really compounded by the destruction of the, of the archives. And we wait, of course, a day's breath to see what beyond 2022 um, can add to, to this for us. Um, but meanwhile, um, a recent boom in archaeological excavations as a result of big road and rail um, projects means that there's now a wealth of material culture for diet. So, you know, the tiny fragmentary remains of plants that were consumed, bones from animals, objects used in the preparation and consumption of foods, um, and of course, the remains of the people who actually ate um, these foods too. In the past 10 years, the intense level of activity in Dublin alone has led to a series of high-profile early modern finds. So the skeletons, as the media put it, of malnourished Tudor commoners discovered outside Trinity, um, a hoard of 17th century domestic um, items found at Rathfarnham Castle and the remains of a 1640s apothecary's shop in, in Dublin. 
suppose that the problem is that it can take uh, quite some time for data from these kinds of um, finds to appear in the public domain. And it's usually the case that where analysis of diet occurs, it tends to remain buried in specialized technical reports. Um, and also there's this sort of discrete attention paid to plant remains or animal bones or objects rather than to diet as a whole. Also, there tends to be um, an emphasis on individual sites, so often studied in great detail, but often with limited integration with either broader archaeological findings and even much less with the historical evidence for, for diet. Um, the last problem is, is partly because a lot of archaeological effort in relation to food still focuses on prehistory. So the early modern period, I suppose traditionally, despite its historical importance, um, for archaeologists has been a bit too recent to be of, of interest. I don't think it's quite as sexy as Vikings or the Neolithic period and so on. So it, seems to, it seems to be neglected a bit. Um, there tends to be an assumption that we know we know everything already. And this means that the sort of cutting edge scientific techniques, the molecular and the isotopic analysis, would prove potential to help us interpret the archaeological material. And these um, remain mostly limited to use in prehistory. It may soon be the case that we actually know more about Neolithic diets than we do about modern from that point of view. So what we hope to do is to create opportunities from these, these challenges, so to bring together the history, archaeology, science and technology to really deepen our understanding of, of food, um, not just in an Irish context, but hopefully developing a model that can then be applied to other um, periods and regions as well. Now, I suppose to move to some work that's been done before as a, as a background to, to all of this, there's a, there's a general assumption amongst historians, especially Irish historians, that we can't actually study food consumption as distinct, of course, from representation or descriptions of, of diet um, in any detail from the historical record. Uh, we can, um, but with very serious limitations. So analysis of Ireland's um, overseas trade, for example, which is how I um, originally became interested in food. Well, that showed that far from being the sort of colonial backwater that we all thought Ireland was, um, parts of Ireland actually witnessed an unexpected consumer boom in the 16th century. So there was a very dramatic increase in the range of goods imported over the course of the century. Um, new foodstuffs like sugar, rice, tobacco, hops, vegetable seeds, um, types of fruit and so on. There was a major diversification of food-related manufactured imports. So we start to get cheaper versions and lots more variety of things like knives and drinking glasses and new types of um, ceramic cooking serving ware and so on. Um, even mass consumption of new things like trenchers, um, for example, which indicates sort of shifts in, in the processes of eating and so on. I haven't got time to look at these in, in detail, but we do know from this research that these goods were widely diffused throughout Ireland, certainly beyond the greatest, the towns of greatest English influence um, in the southeast. And we know that those trends were not driven by colonization, so the process was well over, um, well underway before the plantations. The problem, of course, is that import records as a sort of a macro historical source can only take us so far. So at the end of the day, uh, these kinds of records will tell us what was put on a ship um, at a port like Bristol and sent to Ireland. 
but what happened to it once or even if, if it arrived um, is completely unknown. So who consumed it? How much did they consume? How often did they consume it? These things we don't know. Um, these kinds of records as well, um, they're very good in terms of um, new manufactured goods and so on, but they don't tell us anything much about everyday diet. So not the meat or grain or dairy, things that were produced locally and so on. They're very limited chronologically. So we have lots of detail for the 16th century, almost um, none for the 17th century. The best ones are focused on trade on just one single route. That was the Ireland Bristol route. Um, this means that we miss the detail in the European and wider global trade from these, from these records. Um, and while they're detailed in one sense, they're often, they often lack detail in another sense. So we might know that we have earthenware pots coming in, for example, and lots more of them coming in, but where do they originate? Um, what type of pot is it? And, and so on. And Ellen will talk a little bit more about, about this later. Um, so another way, keeping these problems in mind, another way to get at patterns of dietary consumption is, of course, through household accounts. Um, these open a very different window on consumption. So they show us trends at the level of an individual household or an individual institution. And these present um, a very different view. So they show the introduction, for example, of new luxury perishables, um, things that the customs accounts might miss. So, for example, this is an image from a Dublin Castle household account from 1574. And you can see here um, what I think is the first reference to turkeys being consumed in, in early modern Ireland. We find things like artichokes and pineapples and these kinds of luxury foods turning up. Um, they demonstrate how new types of imports were used. So for example, if we're interested in the transformation of brewing in this period, and we can see hops coming in on a, on a shipment, Household accounts allow us to look at how much of that is being used to make different types of beer and the volumes of sugar and spices expended and the occasions on which these luxuries were used. So in cultural terms, the life cycle of, of these foodstuffs. And they give us huge amounts of detail of specific processes undertaken um, in certain households. So especially in relation to um, brewing, baking, um, uh, the use of grains, types of equipment, frequency of, of these things, um, and so on. And they also show trends in the everyday consumption of, of food. So again, things that, that um, aren't important. So this is just an example. You can see here from records from Dublin Castle that we can look at um, seasonal consumption of beer um, over, over time. So you can look at monthly consumption, for example, and you can see how consumption increases in the summer months. Um, and so on. Um, this one shows you from Christchurch Cathedral how we can break down the relative use of different types of grain in beers. So again, this one shows the predominance in Irish urban beers, um, and we can track that over every month of the year in this in this case. So re real nuance in in these accounts, even if we don't have very many of them. Um, now these kinds of trends obviously relate to the availability of food in different seasons and years, but they also speak to cultural conventions and therefore identities. So here, um, this one, you can see by breaking down fish consumption by month, again at Dublin Castle, and um, we can clearly see the maintenance of the Lenten fast in a post-Reformation English context in Ireland, which would suggest that um, fasting and feasting may not have been a clear marker of religious belief in Ireland in this, in this period. Um, and here's another interesting breakdown. Um, so this time we're looking at 
um, a breakdown of the relative volumes of meat, fish and dairy consumed in 1590 at, at Dublin Castle. Um, so again, this, this, this shows you really, I suppose, the huge um, em emphasis on red meat there. So you can see about 80% red meat, but about 66% of that um, was beef. And we can see here very similar figures, 1570, for example. Um, this, of course, is a huge amount of beef. Comparative figures for relative consumption in great households in England, for example, estimate beef consumption at about 33% um, of, of intake. What makes this particularly thought-provoking is its origin. So around a third of that was received as a gift from Gaelic Irish lords given in return for acknowledgement of their chiefry. So in other words, the political um, impacted directly on, on dietary trends um, in, this, in this year. But of course, there's also deep cultural significance to these, to these trends. So in recent years, explorations of the meaning of early modern food through the study of the dietary or the regimen genre by historians like Ken Albala, for example, have shown the increasing link between food and national identities from the mid 16th century. So beef became central to food fashioning and constructions of Englishness. Um, challenging ancient wisdom, humanist dietary writers concerned with the health of the English body politic praised beef as most nourishing onto English bodies. Um, according to Kogan, for example, um, English bodies could be distinguished in their difference and strength and clean making, which feed chiefly upon beef. Beef was associated with hard work, physical strength and English masculinity. And this association underscores the outpouring of colonial descriptions um, of Irish diet in this, in this period, which of course parrot these dichotomous representations of English and Irish foodways I'm always emphasizing the lack of beef um, and meat in the Irish diet and an over-reliance on filthy dairy produce and, and so on. And cultural historians, I suppose, wanted to understand these associations, tend to stress that they're purely representational nature. So Mino Spearing, for example, claims that though it was never a true staple, beef became a prime emblem of Englishness in the 16th century and has remained so ever since. The problem here, of course, is that it's impossible to understand dietary representation without examining its basis in actual consumption. And these provisional trends uh, uncovered here um, at Dublin Castle, which of course is the key site of England's contested colonial power during a very formative period of national food ideology, would suggest that there really was a dynamic link between ideas and practices and demonstrates the importance of holistic approaches to diet and foodways in this and in other periods. So I suppose um, what I'm saying really is that there's the picture is very fragmented, but it is possible to meaningfully reconstruct diet through the historical records to, to some extent. But nonetheless, um, historical approaches in isolation leave um, severe gaps or have severe gaps and limitations. So they're either very broad, um, as in the case of our overseas trade, or they're very narrow um, in the case of household consumption. Dublin Castle is not exactly representative um, overall. We don't have any household accounts, obviously, for Gaelic communities or for anybody um, above the level of, of elite. Um, even at that very narrow level, we have lots of detail, but we still don't know very much about what individuals ate. So how then can um, integrating different approaches help? 
So this is a, an overview of um, what we're planning, what we're planning to do. So you can see we're adopting a, a multi-scale interdisciplinary uh, methodology. So on the one hand, this includes um, expanding the database of, of household accounts, which will be starting in a, a work package that starts in, in February, but then integrating the archaeology and science to help us to develop and interpret this picture a bit more. And this includes mapping the archaeology, um, lipid analysis of, of um, ceramics and pots, uh, isotope analysis of um, human skeletons, experimental archaeology, um, in, particularly in relation to brewing, um, and then contextualizing and comparing these findings with a host of literary sources to try and examine this link between representation and reality a bit more. I'm going to hand over to Muriel um, first and then to Ellen. Muriel leads the Mapping Diets uh, project, um, which is hosted by UCD. Um, so Muriel's going to explain, sort of give you an overview of what we're planning to do. And then Ellen is going to fill in a bit on um, her current work um, on that, Ellen's population, the database. Over to you, Muriel. Uh, thank you, Susan. Can you put on the next slide for me, please? Um, so what we're looking at in this section of the project, the mapping diet section, is um, archaeological evidence. And we're looking particularly at data from excavation reports. So these are archaeological excavations that have been carried out across the island over the last 40 years or so. And some of these excavation reports are published in monographs and journals that you can see here. Others are archived online in the Digital Repository of Ireland, the DRI database, uh, particularly some of those from the road and the motorway excavations over the past few decades. And some of these excavation reports were never published. Um, so we go to the National Archive of Excavation Reports at the National Monument Service in the Department of Housing, uh, Local Government and Heritage. Um, and what we do is we read in great detail these excavation reports and extract the data that we're interested in. Sometimes these are very large documents. Some of the published ones can be maybe 30 pages. Um, some of the unpublished reports in the DRI can go 300, 400 pages. So it's a huge amount of work in this is making our way through those reports and extracting the data. Uh, next slide, please, Susan. Um, so what we're doing is we're collecting the archaeological data at a very detailed level. Um, and this is to help us address our research questions. So starting off at the site level, uh, we record which site the material comes from. We record the, the geographical location of the site and also the information about what people were doing there. So is it an urban site? Is it within the walls, within the town walls? Is it a rural settlement on its own? Is it part of a little village or what's happening with it? Then we move down to the deposit level and we look at the deposit containing the material that's of interest to us. So was the material found in a pit or was it in a ditch or is it in a house floor? And in this project, we're really interested in consumption, but also deposition as well. And trying to think about how that material was deposited in the past. And what does that tell us about individual actions and people's engagement with food and then broader societies as well? And then we have the material itself. So we've decided that we're going to focus on three data categories in this, which I'll run through just over the next couple of minutes. Um, and the three categories are plants and animals and objects. So next slide, please, Susan. So the first one is plants. Um, so these are plants that people would have been preparing and cooking and eating. Um, people are often surprised that you can find these plants surviving on archaeological sites. So these are things like seeds and nutshell and tubers, the larger remains. 
Um, and usually they will decompose and you won't find much of a trace in them on an archaeological site because they're organic. But in certain conditions, they can become preserved and they can become preserved for hundreds and thousands of years in the archaeological record. And usually that's if they've become burnt, as you can see the material on the right is charred. And if they're charred in certain conditions, they can survive really well. And then we can identify what material this is. And another one which is particularly important for this project is if they're waterlogged. So we particularly get that in our urban environments um, where you get material is kept wet, air is excluded and it survives really, really well. And we can tell what the material is when we bring it into the lab. So in terms of the plants, we're looking at the species um, of material that's there. <clears throat> also looking at the quantities and we want to think about how people are engaging these things across space and time and how that might differ in terms of the quantities and also the elements. So are you looking at cereal grains or is it waste material like cereal chaff? And what sort of material is this? Uh, next slide please, Susan. Uh, and then the second category is animal bone. And with the animal bone, there's more you have to record in this, so it's more complex. Animal bone is great, it's hardier than the plants, so it will survive in many different conditions. Um, but if you have very acidic sites, very acidic soils, it's not going to survive so well. But on lots of sites, you do get animal bone. And we're looking at the species of animal bone that's present. We're looking at the quantities again and the elements, where it is on the body it's from. It's the same kind of thing as the plants. But then we can do a bit more with the animal bone. We can look at things like the age of the uh, bone. We can look at the sex of the mammal as well. We're interested in things like that because <clears throat> from um, the age and the sex, we can start inferring, inferring um, if dairying is being carried out at a site or if you're dealing with a dairying economy or why people are raising these animals. Also, we're looking at the measurements of them. We want to think about the size of the animals and potentially the meat weights, which Susan will talk about later. And then also we're really interested in this idea about how people are engaging with their food. So how it's being treated and looking at the type of butchery marks and seeing if we're finding different patterns in differing places. Uh, and next slide, please, Susan. And then the final category is objects. Um, so objects are very diverse, thousands and thousands of objects we're entering into the database. And they're objects that are related to food. So they may be the implements people are using to prepare food, to serve food or to share food. Um, it may be other things as well that have a relationship with food like these clay pipes we're using tobacco. Um, we're looking at the form um, and the function and the decoration, so making records about all of these, the type of materials um, from which the objects are made, and particularly the provenance we're really interested in. We want to think about those food networks locally, nationally, globally, at a European level, to try and think about how these things are coming in. Um, and also chronology. So this is something that's really helpful in trying to tie the material together with the history, which is one of the challenges of the, of the project, because a lot of these objects are quite well dated, sometimes within a generation or maybe within 50 years or maybe 100 years. And also we can use other objects that are really well dated, like coins. So we're incorporated them into the database and also radiocarbon dates where they are available. And um, so we've been working on this for the past year or so, um, we've got the database going and all the material is going in. Next slide, please, Susan. Um, and this is how it looks at the moment. Um, so we've got just over 100 sites in the database. You can see we're focused on certain areas because we've started to do, we've been doing different area by different area. So we've got lots of corkin at the moment um, and we're moving up around the, uh, the country as well. Like my colleague Ellen is moving up west at the moment um, and then eventually we will be going more north, especially when we're able to get into some of those archives again when they open up in Northern Ireland again. But at the moment we've got over 100 sites in um, I would imagine that we'll at least double this uh, by the end of the project in terms of the archaeology. Um, and what I'm going to do now is 
hand you over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Ellen O'Carroll. So Ellen is working really hard on getting that information out of the archeological excavation reports and inputting it into the database. So Susan, if you want to go to the next slide um, and over to Ellen. Thanks, Mariel. Um, so my role is collating and entering the archaeological food related evidence, as Mariel has explained, from thousands of archaeological excavations, both across the north and south of, of Ireland. Um, and as Mariel has shown in her last slide, we have inputted data from over 100 excavations so far from 40 different counties. And this includes we've inputted over 2,000 food-related items and objects and over 2,000 fauna species and plant remains collectively. Um, so the archaeological database, as Susan and Mary just talked about, can inform us about the past diets on many different levels, both socially and culturally. And this data can actually bring to life, bring, can bring to life the past diets um, and the material culture and trade that Susan has discussed through the historic records. We are still actually inputting the data into a relation, relational database, but we have some early and exciting results. So one excavated feature, which is particularly informative about food is the cesspit and the guard rope feature, which you can see in, uh, in the slide there. They're uh, known to us as formal toilets of which the most common are shown above in the diagram. So people deposited household waste waste as well as latrine waste in these deposits. So the actual remains of food, such as seeds and pips that were consumed, digested and, and excreted, as well as food waste such as animal bones can be found in these cesspits and guard ropes. As well as we also find food related objects such as pots and knives. So these features are particularly informative, informative building up a picture of, of past diet and the material culture. Next slide, please, Susan. So data from these excavation sites will be queried and modeled through different time slices throughout the 16th and 17th centuries to explore regional um, and social patterns of use. So today I'm going to present some preliminary results from two cesspits um, and one guard rope feature from Cork and Galway City, as well as a cesspit from Clare Abbey near Ennis in County Clare. So the data that we're building up then can be used to establish the geographical trends. We can compare urban and rural consumption at different levels and we can help and the, the data can help us unravel um, the data can help us to unravel the cultural and social significance of different levels of society through food related material and culture. So, the, so the, the feature on the left hand side is a guard robe excavated from Grattan Street in Cork and um, the guard robe shoes you can see in the picture um, uh, the, the waste would have been deposited out the guard robe and then the layers underneath would have been excavated and analysed. Um, the second site is a 17th century uh, dwelling site from Galway City. Um, it's a, there's a guard row, a cesspit at the side. You can't really see it in the picture, but it's a, a stone lined cesspit on the left hand side of the dwelling house. So that was sampled and analyzed and the data has been put into the database. And then the third set site is a Clare Abbey, an ecclesiastical site in near Ennis. And you can see the stone lined cesspit there at, at the side of the picture, um, just at the, the right hand side, it's stone lined and square. So we know very little about the people who lived in these buildings and what types of lives they actually led. So these cesspits can lead us into the everyday lives of people in modern Ireland through the exploration of their food related material. So next slide, please, Susan. 
So the, this cesspit is um, from Middle Street in Galway City. It's a stone-lined pit. It was attached to the dwelling house um, on the outside of it. It was sampled. You can see how we sample the, um, the, the, the layers. Um, it's sieved, it's identified, and it's inputted into the database. And then the database is queried, and um, we come up with some nice results that you can see in the slide here. The findings from this cesspit uh, are typical of what archaeologists describe as a medieval fruit salad. So the medieval fruit salad include a range of foods, uh, gathered wild foods, possibly imported foods, cereals and cabbage um, and possibly radish. These findings are interesting for a number of reasons. So the figs and grapes indicate engagement with broader European dietary fashions, showing that these tastes were indeed a features of diet beyond the anglicized parts of Ireland. So it remains to be seen whether we can distinguish this type of consumption across different social levels and in more rural areas in the west of Ireland. Or it may even be the case that Galway's position and direct trade, especially with Spain, led to different types of consumptions when compared with other regions. So next slide, please. Um, and then in comparison, a second cesspit uh, from Grattan Street um, in Cork uh, produced a much wider mix of food and debris and wild plants. So here, are we looking at a different class? Are we looking at a different type of dwelling, different social strata, slightly different date or regional differences? There are some figs here, but far less than we see in Galway. Um, there are apples and blackberries also present, but there's a much wider range of wild foods. And we also have bracken and mosses, which may have been used as toilet paper. So an interesting find from this site is also the corn cockle, which is generally extinct in arable fields nowadays. And it, if you eat enough of it, it's actually poisonous. So why was it found in this cesspit in Cork City? It seems that the cereal grains were not fully cleaned of their contaminants, which means that sometimes the arable weeds, weeds were actually consumed and then found in these cesspits or toilets, which we can uh, study later. So it is interesting to note that care was not taken here to remove a weed seed that would have actually discolored the flower and upset people's stomachs. Next slide, please. So the archaeological record of these cesspits can also show the diffusion of food-related objects through trade. So we have this beautiful beaker here from Venice, um, was found in a cesspit, the cesspits I showed, I showed you from Clare Abbey near Ennis. And we also found some North Devon gravel-tempered ceramics from uh, North Devon. So we're uncovering everyday objects like this North Devon uh, gravel-tempered pantheon, which was used to settle milk and dairying, which can tell us then, it can tell us again about production, dairying production, and levels of sufficiency in different contexts. And then again, when we map their distribution, it can inform us about the changing consumer trends and shed light on issues of self-fashioning through material culture. These objects also can be tightly dated, like this beaker from uh, from Venice is dated to between 1600 to 1640. So it can also help us to be more precise about the pace of changing trends. And then lastly, um, Susan discussed the importance of beef at Dublin Castle. So Dublin Castle was a site representing elite English consumption and noted the significance of meat to English ideas of identity. 
An important question, of course, is whether beef or meat, meat was eaten more generally. Was it eaten elsewhere? Was it eaten in, in Gaelic, Irish or lower class households? So certain houses, certain sites that we are inputting into the database are suggesting that it was, presenting a very different picture to current ideas around lower class Irish diet. So this site at Kileglund in Ashburn in County Mead, um, you can see the, the foundation layers of the, of the house. It was a series of, of Gaelic Irish dwellings dated to the 16th and 17th centuries, included bones from most domestic animals, featuring cattle as the highest number of identified specimens. So we are confident that the database as a whole will help us to understand these dietary distinctions in a much more nuanced way. I'll hand you back over to Susan. Great, thank you. Thanks, Ellen and, and Mario. Um, so that's the, the mapping diet um, and the progress we've made through, through that. Um, we also want to integrate archaeological approaches to help us interpret some of the more problematic findings in the in historical record um, more directly as well. Um, Muriel's talked about bone metrics and, and zoo archaeology. Um, for historians, the question is, how can we unlock the historical data on animal consumption in household accounts if we don't know how much meat was on an average cow? So the pie chart that I showed you earlier was based on meat waste from Scottish cows. Um, so again, hopefully this will help us to, to unlock um, what meat means um, in a more a more nuanced context there. Um, Fiona Beglin is our zoo archaeologist working, working on this. And similarly, um, how can we understand the nutritional or social significance of heavy drinking um, of beer in households if we don't know the strength and alcohol content of, of beer? And to understand this, we're integrating the very detailed evidence for brewing in the household accounts with other documentary evidence and with experimental archaeological techniques and scientific analysis. Um, so narrowing our focus, I suppose, to examine one staple um, foodstuff in forensic detail. And I'll say a bit more about this because we've made quite a lot of headway um, on this, on this um, overall already. Um, beer is, used to be a very overlooked dietary staple, but recent work by historians has established um, its absolute centrality to early modern diets. So work by Craig Muldrew, for example, on household accounts in England showed very high consumption um, and very regular consumption and questioned these entrenched um, ideas regarding the potency um, and nutritional value of, of beer. So you've all heard the, the stories, beer was 2% and people drank it because the water was bad and, and so on. Challenging these ideas can't be achieved though through a monodisciplinary approach. This is another example of where bringing these approaches together works. Um, and this, I suppose, applies as much to scholars attempting to recreate ancient beers without any historical evidence of the relative ingredients used or the brewing processes. Um, also to the problem though of trying to calculate, um, as Muldrew and other historians have done, the nutritional value of beer just based on the historical evidence without any engagement with the brewing process. Um, or I suppose even more so with the tendency in recent studies to try and establish the dietetic value of early modern food and drink using modern equivalents. So for example, um, there's 200 calories in a pint of Guinness. So a 16th century soldier got 1600 um, calories a day from, from beer and so on. Clearly, it is impossible to establish the alcohol um, or protein content of beer based solely on 
calculating the amount of grain that was used to, to make it. Um, I suppose one example of already, I suppose, showing the value of experimental archaeology in this regard um, is this, this simple experiment here. So, as I said, some historians have based their analysis of calories in beer from a measurement of how many pounds of oat malt were contained in a bushel. Um, and it's 22 pounds, apparently. And this, this figure has been passed on from study to study over, over the years. The act simply of us putting our oat malt into an actual bushel and weighing it suggests that the weight is actually double um, what's been assumed. And this is an image of our brewer, um, Mark Meltonville, um, striking a bushel. Um, and of course, this, this simple discovery has very significant implications um, for the results of, of previous studies. In addition, um, brewing, malting, milling equipment, um, and the techniques, of course, um, used were markedly different. And these implications can only be understood through the systematic reconstruction of each stage of the brewing process. So this is what we're doing. Um, we're using brewing directions, household accounts, um, and bringing these together with experimental techniques to investigate the nature of, um, of beer. And this includes um, identifying, growing, and sourcing heritage grains and hops, which we've now successfully achieved. This is a, an image of our, um, our, our hops that we grew over the last three years. Um, we've also developed some very interesting collaborations. So we're working with um, a microbiologist in UCC, John Morrissey, who's doing some genome sequencing of the yeast that we're going to be using. Um, and we're working with experts in brewing technology um, and artisans throughout Europe, like coopers and coppersmiths, um, and so on, to replicate the equipment. So this is um, some of our equipment in action here back in March before, before lockdown. Um, and we did manage to successfully trial this equipment using modern grains, um, because our early modern grains are so, so precious. Um, the beer got locked down, but the results that we have from other um, experiments that we've continued on through lockdown um, produced this, this beer here um, that you can see in a 16th century glass. So this is basically the 1574 beer um, from the Dublin Castle accounts. And for what it's worth, um, it doesn't taste very nice and it has an alcohol content of 5.4%. And that was the ordinary um, household beer um, used for servants and so on um, at the castle. Um, and you can see, I suppose, from these pictures um, that all of this experimentation is done publicly through collaboration with the Weald and Downland Museum. So we're working on ways of engaging with the public as we, as we proceed. And hopefully we'll be able to finish this um, experiment once lockdown ends. Um, the next, um, the next um, I suppose, part of the, of the project is to select sites identified through the Mapping Diet database and then use those sites to, um, under, um, to use isotope analysis and lipid analysis at certain, at certain sites. Um, so organic residue analysis or the lipid analysis um, first. So I suppose um, basically this is taking pots um, and taking the, uh, analyzing these for the fats that are either cooked around the edges of them or absorbed into the, into the pots. And these can help us to identify various fats from different foods, but also things like um, waxes and oils in pots and so on. Um, in Ireland, this approach is still quite new beyond the Neolithic period. And this would be the first significant use of the technique in the early modern period in any context. 
Um, this is Julie Don at Bristol, who's, who's um, undertaking this, this for us. Um, the, the reason we're interested in this for early modern Ireland is because we have an abundance of recently excavated and well-preserved pottery that can be quite accurately dated. We can contextualize it with the, with the um, documentary evidence, but also because as a scientific technique, it's really well-placed to help us address some of the questions we've been, we've been talking about. So for example, and can we see distinctions in meat and dairy consumption um, at a more complex level? Um, but also, can we use this to help us understand trade and globalization a bit more? So if we can identify exotic resins in, in certain types of vessels, um, would that provide us with more evidence about overseas trade and the diffusion of new tastes and so on? Um, also, uh, we might have to look at material trends vessels, we can test the evidence in the records that suggests more specialized or more commodified um, this period. But collectively, all of these results will still present a very just picture of the level of either an individual establishment or an archaeological site. The second scientific approach, multi-isotope analysis, narrows the scope of, of our study. So this time we're approaching diet from the level of individual human skeletons in a range of different contexts. Um, so basically uh, the ladybird version for, for historians, when you're alive, um, you build your body basically out of the food and drink that comes from your local environment and gets into your skeleton. And so it's there when, um, when you're buried. And historians, archeologists can take tiny samples from human skeletons and then try to reconstruct the environment and the experiences um, and mobility of people in the past. So um, bone analysis can show us dietary um, averages over the last years of an individual's life. Um, teeth can present a different view. So teeth reflect a diet at the age that the crown of the tooth was formed. And because teeth form at different ages, if we analyze multiple teeth um, from the same individual, we can start to look at shifts in, in diet over time. Over the past 30 years, this has become widely used to reconstruct diets, especially in relation to the prehistoric period. But lately there's been some really good work on medieval Gaelic Ireland, so comparative potential for us. Um, we want to use a suite of isotopes to firstly broadly establish the population consumption of select sites, and second to examine comparative dietary behavior in relation to um, four key issues. So who's living at the site and do diets differ amongst people of different origins? Um, can we look at social status, geographic location and gender um, and how those influence diet? Um, this of course was a turbulent period. So can we look at the impact of famine, um, siege, scorched earth warfare um, on the diet of individuals? And can we look at the impact of specific consumption practices like uh, the huge consumption of beer, for example, um, on human tissue in individual skeletons. Um, we've made some good progress here in that we've identified, working with Lorreen Buckley, our project osteologist, we've identified the sites we want to sample. We've now got um, licenses from the museum to go ahead with, with this um, work. And this map shows you a distribution of those sites and the types of sites that we're looking at. So up to, up to 12 individuals from each of these sites, um, men, women, and children, you can show, we can see a good geographic spread here. Some of these are associated with a very specific event 
So um, sieges, for example, in Limerick and at Clockwater Castle, some are associated um, with very tightly dated objects. So a woman is, um, for example, buried with a pipe that can be dated to 1620 to 1660, um, which again is very interesting because it allows us to, to narrow the focus. Um, 16th century is less well represented than we would have liked. Um, we can date the 17th century remains much tighter. So again, that's one of the challenges that's um, come up. But hopefully next year we'll be able to um, share some results from, from this as well. Um, and that's Janet Montgomery at Durham, uh, who's our isotope specialist who's, who's working on this, on this for us. Now, I suppose um, just like historical approaches, scientific approaches have limitations as well. So what we would like to do is overlap these, these studies. So take, for example, um, pots and bones and compare the results. Um, again, unfortunately, that's that's proving challenging because people in our period didn't tend to be buried with um, with pots. Um, so we have to look at creative ways around um, overlapping um, approaches uh, as well. Um, OK, so to conclude, then. I suppose how we consider food and identity at the moment is very simplistic and dichotomized. We either think about English versus Irish consumption or high versus low status consumption. And it's not grounded in evidence of actual practices. So once we establish in more detail what people actually ate, um, then we should be able to start to distinguish um, actual and ideological basis for national and social food stereotypes. So are they based on, are descriptions based on what people actually observed um, or are they fake news? Uh, I suppose the most striking thing for me so far has been the extent to which satirical descriptions of peasants written by the Gaelic Irish elite directly were directed on contemporary European tropes. So they didn't eat meat and they ate leeks and beans and cheese and black bread and, and so on. These are um, sort of symbolic or metaphorical descriptions that are based across Europe. They may indeed bear very little resemblance at all to, to actual consumption. So I suppose the idea is that a lot of research focuses on ideas or consumption, but what's the link? Um, hopefully we will be able to demonstrate the impact of colonization and warfare on diet, understand all of the factors that underpin diet and situate Irish developments in a broader global framework. Uh, we think this will be very impactful research. It will radically improve the understanding of food in complex societies. Um, as it was presented, a limitation or solution to the limitations of discrete uh, approaches and lead to sustained interdisciplinary cooperation. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, it challenges the traditional narrative of Irish food history, demonstrating once and for all the value of moving our focus beyond the potato. Thank you. Thanks very much, Susan. That was absolutely wonderful. And I think we've got a great sense of the project of the interdisciplinary and interinstitutional cooperation that's going on. It really is quite striking, just the number of people involved and the different approaches. And I like the way that all sorts of new questions and new answers are coming up. And getting further confirmation of the opinion I've always had that everybody in the early modern world um, was drinking quite a lot, and that explains why it's so weird. Um, it's underestimated, and I think your final slide there of the new Irish diet is telling. Um, if 
I just want to again just call out anybody who has questions to post them in the Q&A box. And I have an opening question here from Michal of Shukru who wants to know, um, and he lost connectivity, so we apologize in advance. Um, he suggests that although most of the population lived in rural communities and that the Gaelic Irish constitutes the vast majority of the population, is there an inevitable bias in any study of food in early modern Ireland towards the English lordship and its urban centres? I think that goes back to some of the mapping stuff that Mariel was talking about, but I think it may, I think it's also probably a broader question you might want to address, Susan. Is there a bias in terms of the written records uh, for historians? Is that what's, what the question is first, I suppose? Yeah. And yeah, yeah there, well, well, there is. I mean, again, as I, I sort of, most of the, there's a bias in every culture towards elite sources for, for diet. So most of what we have are sort of satirical descriptions um, of, of diet that we don't think bear that much resemblance to, to real practices anyway. In Ireland, most of it's mediated through English sources. So we have lots of descriptions, lots and lots and lots of descriptions in the 16th century of Irish, of English observers of Irish, of Irish diet. Um, and again, they're very similar to, to European descriptions of peasant diet. Um, so I suppose it's always biased that way, but Gaelic Irish sources are, are different um, we have Gaelic Irish descriptions of peasant diet as well, which are very worth investigating. Um, but we can't look at actual consumption practices through Irish sources because there aren't any um, household accounts for, for Gaelic Irish um, culture at all. So that's why we have to we have to use the archaeology to look at. There's not really any other way to do it. And I think that's probably why this is so important. It's sort of a, a different window. Um, so we're never going to get like from like, but we can try and plug the gaps in the Irish historical record by using the, the archaeology. Just on that, is, and is there any danger of bias in the archaeology in terms of where has been excavated, the sort of long-term urban settlements, even sort of road networks and things that are yeah. mapped on top of previous yeah. ones? Does that create issues in itself? Um, I think, well, Mary can hop, hop in here in a minute, but I think we found that we got sort of stuck on Cork for longer than we we thought we would because there's just so much. There's so much from from Cork, and it's been done really well, and it's it's um it's taken a long time to get through Cork. I think there's a risk that we could end up with more for individual counties, um from that point of view. But the recent sort of road development schemes, and that means there is a lot of rural archaeology that just hasn't really been analysed or collated, um yet. So. It, we're in a much better position now than we would have been before, and we're really taking advantage of those um, sort of the new archives for those um, records and that to, to use those. Mary, do you want to add anything to, to that? Um, yeah, if we were looking at, if we were doing this project maybe 20 years ago, I think it would be much more restricted in terms of the variety of sites that we would have. So very many of them would be urban. But because of the excavations over the Celtic Tiger years, and particularly the roadways, um, which went on so many different types of environmental landscapes, we really do have a great variety of archaeological sites um, that we can draw upon um, from all over the island at this stage. If what's interesting is there are certain centres where there are people who are archaeologists who are more interested in the post-medieval period, as we would call it in archaeology. Um, so it's something that has become, I suppose, more popular in archaeology in recent years, but sometimes people didn't maybe give it the attention that it deserved. Um, so Cork has long standing been a place where people have been looking at this, um, Belfast another place. So we do know there are centres where we'll have more evidence. Um, 
but when we put it into the database, we'll be able to analyze it and model it and statistically analyze it, hopefully to work around those kinds of issues. Excellent. I just want to bring Jane Ulmar in here, who I think has raised her hand. Um, Jane, if you want, you can now oh, speak. Thank you very much, Patrick. What a fantastic seminar. And as you say, a great example of just interdisciplinarity and inter-institutional uh, collaboration. My question really is to Susan, and apologies, Susan, I had a, an appointment and I missed the beginning of the seminar, but I'm thinking about um, Red Hugh O'Donnell and, and the skeletons that are lying um, in Valladolid in Spain. I know over the summer we had a conversation about this, but has there been any opportunity to get your hands on uh, any of those skeletons? Uh, and is there any chance of finding red hues? And if we do, what should we expect or what would you like uh, uh, to see? Oh, yes, very exciting. We waited with bated breath to see what would what would be uncovered there because obviously it's in our it's in our period and we'd like to be able to compare. I mean, if we could eventually integrate those results or share our results with the team working on, on that side, that would be very, very interesting. Um, in terms of how a study, how the isotope analysis um, or dental calculus analysis, which is something where else we're integrating that I didn't have time to talk about today, but how those can illuminate Gaelic-Irish diet um, I think it's things that we can't get at in other in other ways. So, for example, um, because it's such a turbulent period, depending on how well preserved they are, um, if we had, for example, teeth and bone samples from the same skeleton, we would be able to look at um, sort of change between sort of juvenile diet and adult diets. We could look at shifts um, in, in change. So, for example, maybe as a result of religious change or as a result of migration or war. So we might be able to look at evidence for the disruption in, the late, in that later century from, from the skeletons. But also things like um, Gaelic-Irish women that, that we could look at indirectly. So for example, by looking at um, sort of patterns in, in changing diet, we could look at the age of weaning, for example, which is very interesting. Um, so by looking at, at um, teeth, we can establish the age the children were weaned and moved on to solid food. So again, that would be a really interesting window into gender, questions of gender and childhood in Gaelic Ireland that we wouldn't be able to get at um, in, in other ways too. Um, so again, he would be a very interesting example of, of elite diet if, if it was identified as that it's actually him. Um, again, because at a, at a graveyard, for example, or at a siege site, we don't know that the, the person we're examining is high status or low status necessarily if we knew for sure that they were and then we compared them with um with you know other people that are graver for example we might be able to look at social distinctions and diets so we can see what elite diet actually looked like um in, in, and be certain of that so that would be very interesting as well okay the next question is coming in from Claudia Tate and I'm going to again allow her to ask the question live Claudia, if you're there. Um. Can you hear me? Yep. Go Hi, ahead. sorry. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting to be asked. Um, yeah, this, thanks so much for such a, fa a fascinating presentation from everyone. Um, I was just saying I was delighted to see the Calegland uh, site there because my husband was involved in excavating it. So I was, uh, I lived with it for a while. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask about the archaeology 
um, the uh, issue of um, kind of misdiagnosing or misdating uh, sites that sometimes arises in, in, in archaeology. How, how do you manage the possibility that the original excavation port reports may have been misdated or misinterpreted? Do you have to go, go uh, reinterpreting them for the purposes of this? Can I, Meryl, I'm going to, can I try and answer this first and then I, <laughs> I'll let you fill in if I make yeah. it, if I make it, I suppose one of the things that we're, um, we didn't really talk about this very much, the, the data modeling that we're, we're trying to do, but one of the things that's very interesting about what, um, what we can do with early modern sites, because we have so many of them, um, is that we can try and model the data based on the dates that we do have, if that makes sense. So if we enter every clay pipe, for example, that we can date to sort of a, a 20 to 40 year period and every coin and then include all of the radiocarbon dates as well um, over a sort of a, a grand scale. We're working with um, Andrew Parnell at Minutes um, to introduce some statistical or Bayesian modeling. Um, and so we think that we'll be able to sort of further this in a way that hasn't really been attempted before to look at um, sort of where we have gaps in the dates. So we think we may be able to add to the dating overall of these sites by entering enough data and then modeling that statistically. Um, the other thing that um, we should be able to do for certain sites is that just in, in very recent years, um, the lipid analysis um, can now be used to, um, to give dates as well. So we should be able to date some, some pots um, using this new technique and add some more dates to those sites as well. And exactly what, what you're saying, and Muriel can fill in on this a bit, um, what we're finding so far is that certain types of pot, for example, that have previously been considered medieval pots um, are, are turning up on sites that are otherwise very clearly dated to the 16th and 17th century. And what we think is that um, they're actually later and that they've been used sort of um, over time to, we've missed 16th century sites basically because of, of this. Um, so again, we would use the lipid analysis to, to see if we can refine that. But again, as we enter more and more data, we should be able to pick up these trends um, and I suppose, again, add to the understanding of, of how these sites are dated. Marion might want to um, correct me there or, or add more to that. <laughs> no, I'm delighted. Hey, Susan, well done. I'm delighted I'm, with I'm that. Learning, you see. <laughs> <You're> learning. <laughs> um, what it is, is in archaeology, our excavations are based on the recovery of material culture. Um, and it's all those different objects and items and elements. And those three categories of material that we're collating the data for, for this project. So we're collating the data. And then we would hope, as Susan said, I would hope we'd refine the dating and the understanding. And that's what we do naturally in archeology span is we get more data, we get more dates, we get more information. We think about it in different ways, in different theoretical viewpoints, and we change our understandings. Um, and that's one of the things that I would imagine will be the outcome of the project. Both we might help to refine the chronologies of certain objects of how long they were used maybe they were used for shorter periods sometimes hopefully and longer periods for some of them as well and just understand um, those changing engagements with them but it's it's based on that material that was found in the excavations whether it was an oak grain or whether it was cattle bone um, or a marie ware pot from the, from Iberia whichever it was so we're we're on stuff that material that we know we have a solid understanding of that side and then we will interpret it in different ways. So yeah, we will be looking to, we would be using the archeologists interpretations as a background to help us understand the patterns we're finding, but we'll really be running with what we're finding in this. Great, it's such amazing implications of this all around. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Is there any further questions? If anybody had a, has a question, if you either want to type it in the Q&A box or if you want to raise your hand, um, more than happy to put them to the panel. Um, one of the things that strikes me is the, um, I'm intrigued by the sort of the spread of beef across the classes that you're suggesting in the sort of in the final evidence, because that seems to challenge, as you say, ideas about beef and national identity and what a thesis I was recently reading was talking about sort of carnivorous capitalism, but beef in a later sort of period and the ways in which Irish beef becomes part of English identity. But what you seem, seem to be suggesting is that the Dublin Castle beef is coming from Gaelic, is partly gifts from Gaelic Ireland, but also that beef is operating at a, at a wider social scale. And does that have, can, 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 will, will that have, does that mark a major reassessment of the role of the cow um, and I suppose beef in Irish history? And I know Juliana Edelman has talked about previously about writing an Irish history through beef and through cows. Do you think your project will make that more possible? I think so. I mean, again, the animal bone ha has turned out to be one of the most difficult parts of, of this. Um, you could see even on L um, graph there that, that at that particular site, a lot of bone is, is unidentified. Um, a lot of the time bone is very badly burnt, uh, identified, or at certain sites, like in terms of the bias, I suppose, of sites, sites in the west of Ireland where bone isn't as well preserved, it won't be as easy to identify. Um, point of view. Sites that Ellen has already inputted, I think it's 106 or 109, 35 of those sites have already yielded um, animal bone and we can do something with, with those. So again, it'll be, I suppose, at the end, seeing exactly where we have the sites and then modeling the data based on, on that. But potentially, um, certainly if we have case studies, for example, there are um, a number of what we know are sort of rural, um, simple cottages um, if we can sort of do case studies of particular types of, of environment and then look at what sort of what meat consumption looked like at that, um, at that, then we will be able to build a picture that, you know, should challenge these ideas about, um, about consumption and that. And it's worth noting, I think, this idea, um, yes, the English were obsessed with, with Ireland and not eating meat. But again, in, in other, in sort of European literary descriptions, you find peasants being associated with very particular types of meat. So you, they're always associated with offal, for example, or tribe or the innards of animals and so on. So England describing um, British associated with, with, you know, carcasses of dead animals and things like that, that's kind of part of a bigger European joke about what peasants eat as well. So it's very worthwhile considering those descriptions in a broader European context. Um, to see if we can un unpick that a bit more as, as well. So we've got Gaelic Irish descriptions of the pens eating um, filthy types of um, animal entrails and things like that as well. So again, I think it's about putting it in a broader a broader context too. Excellent. Um, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. But I think we've had an absolutely fascinating um, insight into the project and into the ongoing work and the potential and I think revolutionary outcomes that are possible what this is going to tell us about early modern Ireland. So it remains just to thank our speakers once again, and just to advertise that next week's seminar will be given by Dr. Scott Sowerby from Northwestern University in the United States, who will be beaming in to talk to us about toleration and our recruitment of Catholics for in 
Imperial Army in the 1750s. So a very different topic. Um, but I look forward to seeing many of you then. And our final seminar will be given in two weeks time, which will be given by Professor Jane Omar on Ireland and Empire in the early modern world. Um, so just thank Susan, Mariel and Ellen for a really superb presentation. And it's only a shame that we can't go and have a drink and compare it to early modern beer with his life. And thank you all. Thank you very much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist Here's to the next.